Peace, fam. This is Davon Love, Director of Public Policy, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. This is another segment of In Search of Black Power. We have some in-depth conversations about things that are relevant um, as it relates to black liberation, black empowerment. I'm here today with a good friend of mine, Dr. Brian Morrison, who's done some extensive work in looking at Baltimore's uh, black educational history. Um, and so, you know, just want to have a conversation about that and just talk generally about how those lessons can be utilized today. Um, so, Again, thanks for, for being with us today, Dr. Morrison. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share the, what I do know and what I've researched and whatever usefulness it can have, I'm surely glad to share it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So first, if you start to introduce yourself, just give us your background, you know, just your you know, general work that you've done. Okay, well, uh, my name's Dr. Brian C. Morrison. I was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, most of my work is around African-American education here in Baltimore, Maryland. My, my specific research uh, deals with African-American educational efforts in Baltimore City during the 19th century. Um, I'm founder of the William J. Watkins Senior Educational Institute that started in 2008. We've been doing work with um, educating teachers and culturally responsive pedagogy, doing that kind of training and providing opportunities for students to uh, do some work in genealogy and family history and local history as well. Um, my day job mostly is in education. I've been a public school educator for almost 40 years now, from New York City to Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Prince George's, and I'm currently working in uh, D.C. at Ballou Senior High School, Southeast D.C. Absolutely. So, so what we can do, you know, when I first was introduced to your work, I remember, um, you know, getting a copy of dissertation and, you know, the work that you've done on documenting, you know, some of, particularly when it comes to black people's history of educating ourselves and building institutions to do that. So if you could start by just outlining what you would say are some of the general themes, you know, highlights of some of that research. Mm -hmm. um, and if there are additional things beyond that that you want to start with. Well, let, let, let me sort of frame it within how I approached this work originally, right? Mm -hmm. So when I, was, when I was working on my doctorate at Morgan State University, studied in the history department there with Dr. Rosalind Turborg penn she was my advisor, um, I wanted to write a dissertation on the history of African-American education in the state of Maryland. And she told me I was crazy. That's way too much to do. We don't have that kind of time. I'll be retired by the time you <laughs> finish. So, so she said, you need to focus it a little bit more. So I said, okay. Um, this idea that, um, you know, black education was, was better during segregation. This is always this idea that's always going around in my head, and I've always wanted to, you know, just really look and see what did that really mean, right? So I figured that when I would do my, what I would do is do a history of black education in Baltimore City during the 20th century. I'm figuring, you know, the Brown versus Board of Education era. So when I started out working on my proposal, um, uh, I was advised, okay, do a little, do some research on what was happening in the 1800s during the antebellum period, bring it up to the 20th century, and then get dig deep into your topic. Um, and my assumption, like many people, was that 
there really wasn't much going on in terms of black education in Baltimore or in the South in general during the antebellum period, right, prior to the Civil War. So when I started to do my research, it, I got stuck in the 19th century because there were plenty of independent African-American educational efforts in Baltimore City going on at that time. And, you know, people find it, you know, a, a little shocking and unusual. Uh, but when you dig into the history of Baltimore and dig into the history of black people in Baltimore, it makes sense, right? Um, Baltimore, for most of the 1800s, had the largest population of black people in the United States of America, particularly free black people, right? So you figure, you know, here we are in a slave state, right? A, a large city in a slave state, but you got all these free black people. What's going on there? Why is that happening? Mm -hmm. So those black folks living there, living in the state in general, are seeking a way of, of trying to, to exist within, within this slaveocracy that happens. And black people from, or uh, let me rephrase that, African people, right? Because that's, that's really what we're talking about here. This is really African history, right? Mm -hmm. So African people who were enslaved in the Americas have always been seeking a path to freedom. And that's where our educational efforts center, right? So I'm looking at, in my research, I'm looking at, at what are the goals of education for black people. And as a part of our ethos as African people, we, see, we, we are into spirit. You know, we're spiritual people. Our ethos is spirituality. Um, so when you, when you look at the purpose of education, um, and you, particularly when you connect it to the black church, um, what black people were seeking, first and foremost, was spiritual freedom. How do we gain our, and because our, 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 our physical reality, right, is, is tied to our spiritual freedom, right? Our ability to be able to express ourselves as spiritual beings. We see it in our music, we see it in our dance, we see it in our art, we see it in, in our everyday existence, in our relationships with one another. That's a, that's a part of the ethos of being an African people. So our, our quest, even within the structure of slavery, was for, for this, this spiritual freedom, which is why a lot, of the a lot of the educational efforts were centered in the black church. And we, we can go much deeper into that, mm -hmm. into the, the formation of the, the first black church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and what, what African-descended people were trying to do with, within that, that history uh, being able to gain ecclesiastical freedom and being able to gain the opportunity to, to preach. Um, because within the Methodist Episcopal Church, it, you know, everybody talks about um, how black folks, you know, didn't want to sit in segregated pews. Yeah, that was it. But the bigger thing was uh, black preachers were not, black people were not allowed to preach in the Methodist Episcopal Church, which meant that black people could not interpret their spiritual reality for themselves. There always had to be a white intermediary to do that for black people. And this was really what the efforts of, of creating independent black churches was about, to have that ability to express that spiritual freedom, which is at the core of African people. So, so our, our quest for education early on uh, was connected to this idea of spiritual freedom. And that spiritual freedom was directly connected to 
physical freedom from bondage from the bondage of slavery. So that that's so that's what I found in in the 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 underpinning and the undergirding of of my research and these educational efforts that were going on during this time period, uh, through throughout throughout this this history and and uh, this you, you can find the, the same thing happening throughout Black America and and the places where where we struggle to to gain our freedom. It's it's rooted in a spiritual freedom. So one of the things I want to ask you to key in on. Um, actually, two things. One is you mentioned this notion um, that you heard of the idea of education being better during segregation. I imagine a lot of people watching this, that would strike them as an odd thing to hear someone say. So can you go a little bit deeper into that and how your research addressed that? Okay. So and this part of my research brings me to the work of the, the Watkins Educational Institute, right? So William J. Watkins Sr. Uh, could arguably be considered the preeminent African-American educator in Baltimore City during the 1800s, right? So he, he picks up on starting, he, he runs a, the, basically the black school for black people in Baltimore from roughly 1820 to 18, to the, into the 1850s when he dips and leaves and goes to Canada. But uh, rooted, what, what I've discovered and not just what he was doing, but in what most black educators were doing during the antebellum period, is that they were culturally responsive pe- practitioners. Mm. They, were cre- they were teaching, um, doing two things, creating a, in, in terms of creating what we refer to as cultural capital. They were creating a shared identity, right, amongst black people with a central purpose. So rooted within the education that black people got when they came to the Watkins Institute, or the Watkins Academy, that was the name of his school, or the African Academy, which was Daniel Coker's school prior to that, what, they were, what the students were getting was not just learning how to read and write, but they were getting an understanding of who they were as a human being, right? And they were also getting a shared purpose of uplift of black people. And that's what, that's, that's what all of the education was rooted in. So when we look at the specific history of Baltimore City and the quest for African Americans to be able to be educated in the public school system of, of uh, Baltimore City, which is a, a whole story in and of itself, I won't go too much into the details of it to, to, in order to get to your question, but to make it, make it quick, after the Civil War, 1867, black folks are, in, are allowed to go to, to Baltimore City Public Schools. Um, from 1867 to the mid to late 1880s, the struggle for black people in Baltimore City Schools was to get black teachers. White folks would not allow black teachers to teach black students. Now, this is, this is flipped on its head in the rural counties. Right. In the rural counties, white folks did not want to teach black folks. White black folks could teach black people. Mm-hmm. So, again, I won't get into the woods on that. But what happens is there's this, this strong campaign. In fact, the first black council, city councilmen to be elected uh, into Baltimore City Council campaigned on a on a. Uh, was elected on a campaign of colored teachers for the colored schools mm-hmm. because this was a big impetus that black people, the black community was going for. We want black teachers in our black schools to teach our black kids. So, and the reason for that was so that those black teachers 
could do what had been being de- what could, what had been being done during the antebellum period, which was being done in the Sabbath schools, in the churches, in the Sunday schools, which were really serious educational institutions in with within our community. Um, the church provided provided way more important educational opportunities for black folks um, during the antebellum period and into the into the 20th century. It was in those Sunday schools uh, where many of the teachers who eventually wound up being in the public school system, they also taught in the Sunday schools, were teaching, were, were providing students with that cultural capital, that sense of purpose and identity and, and that shared purpose. Okay, so, so once we gained, here comes the, the third aspect of freedom, right, of being the purpose of education for African-centered people, African-descended people. The first, the first struggle for freedom was, was spiritual freedom. Then it came freedom from slavery. Once we gained freedom from slavery, the purpose now became uh, access to American body politic, to truly be free within American society, to, gain, to get everything that America says it's supposed to be for all citizens and all people. So this was the cultural capital that was being inst- instilled in African-American students and black students and African-descended students in the school system. Um, it took from... Eight, I'm going to say 1885 to uh, 1905 for all of the colored schools to be taught completely by colored teachers. So you now have two separate school systems within Baltimore City's public schools. You have the white system and you have the black system, the colored system. And the colored system is run by colored people, by black people. So all the black schools have all the black teachers. Most of those black teachers are black women. Very important role of black women as educators within our community. And it's, it, it, it cannot be under, understated the, 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 the importance that they played in terms of creating that, that cultural capital and helping black people understand who we were and what we needed to be about. So you have from, from 19... 1907, actually, up until 1954 with Brown versus Board of Education, Baltimore City has a black school system run by black people for black people educating black people. And it was in that system of public education where black folks were being taught by black people with the purpose of building black people that black people were very, were, were happy with. They're, well, let me not say happy with. Uh, that that need of of creating this cultural capital was being fulfilled, and once we get Brown versus Board of Education and the desegregation of public schools in 1954, there we have the breakdown of that. Because one of the main things that's happening is continuing on today. We can look at it in Baltimore City Public Schools today. Baltimore City Public Schools and no longer majority of teachers in Baltimore City Public Schools are no longer black. Yeah. Uh, this is trend going on around the country, and yeah. it's it's accelerated in many places, uh, yeah. depending upon where you are. But so again, another story. But what what happens in 1954, right? When Brown versus Board of Education is, is approved, then we get Thurgood Marshall arguing the case, great Baltimorean, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Who was trained in those schools. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had Douglas, mm-hmm. right? So, so the irony of this is that black people in Baltimore, uh, there were two options, right? And, and many places were, were pushing for integration. 
well, black people in Baltimore said, no, we're not going to push for integration. We want a system of choice. We don't want to, we're not trying to demand our way into the white schools. We want a choice. We're going to be able to choose whether or not we send our children to those schools because many of the families, and rightfully so, did not want to send their children into these hostile territories because that's what they were. These white teachers were not, let me not make a blanket statement, but many of, let me be a, make a true statement, most of the white folks teaching in the schools did not have the interests of black folks at heart. Mm -hmm. And black parents did not want to send their children into those violent institutions to, to be assaulted by those teachers. They were happy with uh, Miss Jane, who lives down the street, right. who teaches my child in Sunday school, and who can walk to school with my daughter mm -hmm. to and on her way to school, on her way to work. Mm -hmm. So, and the, and to bolster your point, because um, there's a book written by a gentleman Howell Baum, Brown in Baltimore. Right. One of the things he actually mentions is that the school district received a bunch of letters when Brown was coming down, particularly from white parents who describe one of the main reasons, the most consistent reason for not wanting integration from white folks was that they didn't want their white daughters being in close proximity to black boys. Mm -hmm. Like, that was one of the biggest. So just to bolster the point of the level of hostility, that it would make sense for black parents not to want to send their right. children into. Right. And, and that, <clears throat> and again, getting back to the most important point around why black people, to answer your question, why black people... Um, felt that the education that they received during the um, during the the Jim Crow era was better than what they received post Jim Crow mm -hmm. is because they were receiving an education that was rooted in culturally responsive practices. Mm -hmm. These were these were teachers who were teaching mm -hmm. students that they knew. I mean, contemporary research is, is saying now, I mean, this is, I don't know why this is contemporary research is saying that children who are educated by black teachers, black children educated by black teachers have a much greater opportunity for uh, success post-secondary post schools. This, this is no great revelation, right? This is something that we know. Uh, and, and again, this is the, the education that was being provided by those black women in particular during this time period, during the Jim Crow era was rooted in culturally responsive practices because they, they, they lived, they, they shared the lived experience of their students and they were able to take that lived experience and connect it to whatever they were teaching, underwater tiddlywinks or underwater basket weaving, whatever. They could connect that lived experience to what they were, what they were teaching to the children within the, con within the construct of creating cultural capital to mm -hmm. be educated at that time was very valuable. And it was valuable because, one, you knew who you were. There's that shared identity that was, that was instilled in our schools. And two, there was a purpose. And that purpose was to uplift us as a people. Brown versus Board of Education and Integration took that away to a very large degree. You have you you have um, what's what's popularly 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 <laughs> referred to these days as um, as uh, um, abolitionist educators, uh, but th that that is really that that 
that spectrum, that continuum of education really is, is just going back to that. Mm-hmm. Helping students understand who they are within, so that they, who they are for themselves, giving, empowering them with the tools to understand who they are, how they fit into this world based on who they are, not trying to change them from who they are, not looking at who they are as a deficit and saying, oh, no, man, you never make it being like that. You need to be like this. But taking and saying, I understand your experience, Mm -hmm. and this is how we can work that experience to your benefit, Mm -hmm. and here are the tools that you need to figure out how to do that. Not telling them, this is who you need to be, this is who you should be, this is how you should be, but here are the tools to empower you with developing that for yourself, because we're not going to be around here all the time. You're going to need to be able to think and develop it and and to move in these, these spaces that are opposed to you and be able to understand them from the perspective of who you are, and so that you are not out here acting in the world in, in ways that are detrimental to your own self-interest because you don't know any better. And that's what, that's what our teachers were teaching during the Jim Crow era, during the antebellum era, <laughs> during that, up until Brown versus Board of Education. So, you know, um, you know a, lot of, a lot of, there's, there's a lot of debate about uh, Brown versus Board of Education. It was it's, it's good parts and it's bad parts. Uh, Dr. Khalila Harris, I was listening to her yesterday on a podcast, and, and she was very critical of the decision uh, because rooted in the decision, and I agree with her 100%, rooted in the Brown versus Board of Education decision is the, is, is, uh, the, the relief of white guilt, right? Uh, it, it rooted in it is the idea that the only way that black children are going to get a good education is if they're with white people. And that's just not right. If, if the, the, whole, the whole position, of the whole legal strategy leading up to Brown versus Board of Education had been, okay, um, if you're going to say separate but equal, give us separate but equal. Mm-hmm. Make, it, make it equal. If you give us this, if we have the same budgets, we have the same, and, and again, going back to the history of, Bal- of, of black people in uh, the Baltimore City public school system, those were the, the main things that black people were arguing for then, we're still arguing for it today, mm-hmm. is equal facilities, equal access, the same kind of money, all these different commissions that, that we've gone through with the state legislature to get the, the adequate funding to, to bring Baltimore City public schools up to par with other schools, the same thing with the institutions of higher learning, the HBCUs in Maryland, the same thing. If you give us, you, 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 if we have the same resources, we're perfectly happy, educa- perfectly happy educating ourselves and, provide, and building that cultural capital so that we understand who we are and we have a shared purpose in building and uplifting ourselves and our community. Yeah, and if I and if I recalling your research, I mean, one of the things that was a part of some of the nineteenth century civic activity was advocacy around access to those resources um, for those independent um, schools. And so it seems like that's a that's a theme that runs throughout um, the advocacy around Black folks' education. Um, what would you say um, is the importance of the? What lessons can we take? from the way, as you described, you know, 19th century education, we built these independent institutions, there was the importance of cultural capital, spiritual freedom, understanding the importance of getting access to the full society. Um, What are some of the lessons that you would say we could learn 
um, today from the kinds of advocacy, particularly around education, that you describe in your work? Well, we look at this on, on a number of, on, on, we look at this from different perspectives, right? Um, the majority of our people are in public schools, right? So much work has to be done in public schools. Now, my, my son, Akil Parker, all this math, shameless plug, um, uh, he would argue that what we need are independent black educational institutions, and I do too. I think that's ultimately where, where our salvation really is. We are, we're controlling the education of our children and our community, and we're building on that, right? And those, those institutions do exist. We have a long way to go. But that is something that, that definitely needs to be done. And that goes back to the earliest black instit educational institutions, right? Um, along with that, we have to le le leverage the largesse of progressive whites, right? Mm -hmm. We have, to, we have to, to do what, get whatever we can to help us move forward to provide a, a, a liberatory education for our, our students, for our youth in public schools. And that's really where the struggle is, is, is providing, is because the, the campaign that, that, um, that black people put on and people like Harvey Johnson and the Brotherhood of Liberty in Baltimore during the, the 1880s, the campaign that they put on uh, for colored high school, for colored teachers in the colored schools, was not about getting people jobs. It wasn't really about getting a, a, a pretty shiny building. It was really about prov providing us with the opportunity to educate ourselves. And that's the, that's the leverage that we have to use within public schools uh, that, that we provide the tax dollars for. One of the big complaints that, that uh, free blacks had in Baltimore City during the antebellum period and into the um, into the 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 Reconstruction era was that black folks were taxed for public education and couldn't go, both on the state and the city level. So that was that was a big deal, and we are still paying taxes now, and we are not getting the benefits of it. And here in Baltimore City, uh, we we're still doing it. And when, when, when you look at uh, all of this development going on all over Baltimore City and the tax breaks that, that are being given to these white investors who are making literally billions of dollars off of the tax breaks that they are getting for, and those tax dollars are not going into Baltimore City's budget for Baltimore City's schools and everybody's complaining that Baltimore City don't spend enough money on its schools. Well, if we had those billions of dollars in tax dollars that, that was, should be coming in every day on all this development that was being spent, then we'd have money. But, and, and again, that's an additional tax on the poor people of Baltimore City. Mm -hmm. and, it's not go and we're not getting the benefit of, of these breaks that these people are coming from. I'm, I'm going in away <laughs> another, yeah, another angle. but. Good. But it's the, it's the same thing. So these are the lessons that, that we need to learn. We have to understand, um, one, we need to continue to work for our own educational, independent educational uh, efforts. And two, we need to leverage the system to whatever degree we can 
to create liberatory educational opportunities for our, for our community. Those are, those are two of the key, key pieces that, that I would say um, are le important lessons that we can learn and models that we can still use today um, to get the best, to, to, to ensure that our children, that ensure that all of us, not just the children, but all of us, uh, are, receive the absolute best education possible. Because, you know, another aspect of this is, you know, in terms of education, um, education, is, you know, it's a very broad definition, right? Um, when we were during the, during, um, the uh, antebellum period, uh, education meant, it, did, it didn't mean um, your book learning, it meant, do you have the knowledge and the skills to survive within a slaveocracy so that, you can, can, so that you can find your way to be free? That was a very important education. There were no schools teaching that. There were watermen who traveled, who traveled between Baltimore and the Eastern Shore, or the Eastern Shore and the Western Shore, who came back to the communities and brought information to share that. There were, were mothers who, who held on to knowledge that they had from the motherland who came and, and passed it down generation to generation to generation. This is education, right? This is taking what's inside someone and, and, and bringing it out and making sure that it, it flows for their benefit so that they can be free. And that's really, the, the, the again, going back to those three pieces, that's, that is what education was rooted in for black folks, to be free. Now, another aspect of the post-Brown era is, you know, the purpose of education shifted, right? Wasn't about, it's no longer about freedom. You're free now. <laughs> you can go to school with white folks. You're free. <laughs> so you don't need freedom now. What you need now is a big house on the hill, a six-figure salary, and a good job from Massa. So you would say that the ethos then was more about freedom as a collective piece as opposed to like people's individual. Yes, definitely, yeah. definitely. And, and again, that's, that was the cultural capital piece, a shared identity, the uplift of the community. And, you know, I have, a, I have a, 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 my own social theory that the closer that we as a people become to the Western European model, the further away we, we get from truly being successful because that model doesn't work for them and it won't work for us. What we really need to be doing is shifting to that African-centered approach and staying rooted in who we are and our ethos, which is spirituality. And that's, that's, that was the first freedom. We're trying to be free so we can have our spirit, so we can be whole, we can, we can live our full existence as human beings. That's what it's really about. It's not about fancy car, big house on the hill. Mm. Yeah, it's nice to have a fancy car and a big house on the hill, <laughs> but it's really about being free mm. here. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. That's our ethos as a people. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. You know, this is um, really important, I think, for us to use history as a resource, um, and certainly your work has been helpful in, in that for us and I'm sure for others. So I want to thank you for, for talking to me this afternoon. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Peace. Thank you.